Hello everybody and welcome back to What Will The Smart Party Do? It's the start of a new year, new beginnings, all kinds of exciting things await us in the gaming world. Unfortunately, Baz, who I normally say is always with us, isn't with us. He's been struck down by Covid and other foul plagues from Nurgle's own bowels. So, with me, this time I've got a stunned Baz again, it's Guy Milner from the Burn After Running blog. How are you doing Guy? I'm doing very well, yeah, great. Based on this uh, second lockdown we've got, or third, was it? Does the second one count? I don't know. It's, uh... I don't know. I'm losing count of how many yeah. we've had. I've <laughs> just stayed in my bunker for the last sort of year and not gone out yet. <laughs> yeah. Stay in the bunker, play games, talk about games. That's all you need to do, isn't it? <laughs> I, th I think that's it. At some point, I'll go out blinking into the world and either be there or not. I don't know. But I'll have travelled many virtual worlds, and that's, that's what's important. So, uh, this time... Me and Baz frequently mention, I think you're on board with this idea, that we like role plus play plus game in role-playing games. We like all the elements. So you do get some people who say, for example, I've played a session last night and we didn't roll dice all night. It was brilliant. What do you reckon to that kind of approach to gaming? I think, well, with a caveat that however you want to play your game is fine, um, that's not a session that I enjoy, generally speaking. I think that if you're playing a session and you don't roll dice at all, then I'm a bit like, well, what, what did you do? What happened in the fiction? Like, were you doing stuff that the game supported or and you just didn't bother rolling dice? Or did you just do nothing that the game supported and that's why you didn't and you just sat around and chatted and didn't have any stakes or anything? So mm. I'm a bit like, yeah, it's a bit meh for me that. I, want a, I, I, want, I think I want to roll dice within the first half hour, really. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. I think I'm very similar as well. Like I, I, one of the things that Baz says quite often, I'll reference him as much as I can, even though he's not here. It's like um, he's, he's here, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, almost. <laughs> Doesn't need the smell of whiskey and um, stuff. Anyway, uh, yes, he says uh, that system matters, but not as much as you think. Um, but what he generally means by that, I think, is that having the right people around the table and everything is more important. So, uh, as we're adding to the caveat list. I'm quite happy to put that out there, that obviously um, a new system or how many dice you roll or whatever is not going to solve people issues. But um, I think we can put that to one side, that we're, we're agreed across the role-playing conundrum, a uh, world rather, that um, you know get the right people that you like to game with and game in the same way. So that, that's, that's put to one side. So we can concentrate on the systems themselves. And I do see this a lot with people who will say a system's really great and then say they didn't roll dice all night and I wonder why are you saying the system's great then because you didn't use it by definition so I find that odd what about people who just use the bare minimum of a system then like I think quite a, a frequent observation I've got is people use the core mechanic so it might be using percentiles or the resistance table in BRP for example uh, or it might be uh, playing the Apocalypse World style games and just run the 2d6 mechanic and not really getting into all the stuff that's in the rest of the book like does is that actually using a system do you think I mean it's a bit more than not rolling dice at all but it still feels a little bit light to me I, th I think it's I think there's a few different ways in which that can be done really and 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 some of them are like really good like some of it is consciously so I'm going to reference a game that that, that we were both in a few weeks ago we're doing shadow of the demon lord um, we're running like nautical campaign one of the players has got loads of like powers because he's a sea captain that link into the like, optional rule of ship combat 
So it's like, well, he's got these special powers. Let's use the ship combat rule instead of doing what I would normally do, um, which is do like a little skill challenge, successes and failures and stuff. And we did it, and it was kind of okay. Yeah, we'll do that. But I think in future I might just use the sh- the, the skill challenge thing because hmm. I've tried that subsystem. It was a little bit fiddly. It was a little bit more fiddly than the Shadow of the Demon Lord combat normally is, and it wasn't quite as narratively didn't fit our style as a group as well as just doing right. Let's get four successes before three failures or something, and set some hmm. stakes in it. I think there's a conscious way to do it. And I think, I mean, Apocalypse World, a good example might be um, Dungeon World and World of Dungeons. So World of Dungeons deliberately strips out a lot of the um, specifics of the moves of Dungeon World to make it a, a lot more trad in play in, in some ways. And that you've got, it's less prescriptive in terms of these are the moves the GM should do. These are what you should do there. And I think if you're consciously doing it, it's, it's really good. One game that comes to mind when I think about stripping down games that I think is is excellent is um, is New- Newport's Open Quest, which I, I would pitch as being the RuneQuest rules that everyone actually uses. <laughs> and like all the stuff that is in the RuneQuest rules or in BRP rules that everyone forgets about um, is kind of stripped out. So it's just a basic, really straightforward playable system. And you don't, when you play it, you don't have that moment of like, oh, wait a minute, what's what does this thing do? What's the bonus for that? Or what's that hit location? Because it's just the core mechanic, roll percentiles, that, that works. So I think doing mm-hmm. it consciously with thought is is decent. I think I think doing it kind of by accident, by saying, oh, well, we're not, I'll just let you have this without you rolling persuade or athletics or whatever is a bit weak for me, I think, in a, in a table. If I've got the skills, I want to use them. If it's on my character sheet, I want to use it. Yeah, sure. And there's there's several things to unpack there. I think one of them is that for, certainly for like Apocalypse World, one of my complaints about it and the games I've been is that people try and well not try they actually run it more like a traditional game in terms of just using the core mechanic, but don't really look at moves as as written in the book because a lot of the rules are actually in the fluffy text that it would be in a different yeah. book, perhaps in the yeah. book. It almost seems like it's just paragraphs of talking about GMing and stuff, but actually how you play the game as intended by the designers written in that bit. It might not be you get a plus four bonus to initiative in this look, but it you know the, the instructions on how to structure the game and when people get to speak and how you set up threats and fronts and push the game along. That's all in the extra text, but a lot of that seems to get lost in games of AW I've played. Uh, and yeah. I'm just wondering whether perhaps people sometimes just think of rules as in the, the dice mechanics and perhaps not so much in terms of but how do I implement this? Like what how many times do I roll dice, for example, and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think. I think Apocalypse World is a PBTA games are a good example of that as a specific. But I think that the there's almost like a bit of a broader thing about the game rules also being the stuff that you might think is fluff. And mm. I know there's a thing about like how many people have actually read like the Fifth Ed's DMG. Um, I know that you and Baz did like an unpacking of like what's actually in it, and yeah, and and the fact that like. I'd say probably fifty percent of it is like random adventure generator, isn't it? It's, yeah, yeah. It's not what you'd think when you think about fifth edition DMG. If you look at the like discourse on Twitter about like how to run games and stuff, it doesn't bear that much resemblance to what how the game is actually done. And again, it's not it's it's not about people playing the games wrong and stuff. But I think it's easy to to like just flick over. The stuff that the actual GM advice it's like oh what's a role playing game I know that I'll skip that I'll do that. I've done this before and then you can miss a lot of stuff with that I'm trying to think of other games 
are there any other games where that that kind of GMing advice is really crucial that gets that gets missed out sometimes? I think it's in a lot of the sort of small press games. Um, the examples that just popping in my head are the old ones now. So it's things like Cold City and Hot War and Primetime Adventures and Contender and all those other sort of games. You know that I guess a lot of the small press stuff is this is a a focused game about a certain thing and this is how you play yeah, in that yeah. way to get these results. But I think a lot of other the more tra- traditional games, if we can call them that, I'm still wary about saying trad and indie because I know some people get upset. <laughs> but I think I think people know already on this podcast that we're not there's no partisanship or anything. We're just sort <laughs> there's of like no there's of, no actual definition for either of those. No, terms. we just just broadly <laughs> terming things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think sometimes even more traditional games still have uh, stuff like that in there in terms of telling you how many times to roll dice or when not or to not bother rolling in certain circumstances yeah, yeah. and that can be quite interesting if you look at the when to roll dice bit again that's another one like what is a role playing game that most people will zip past yeah, yeah. But, but some games are more explicit about saying don't roll for this all the time or you know if you keep rolling for this it's going to use up all the resources or think things of that nature uh, an example of one i can't remember what's in the actual text or not but we found from playing is vesen or vesen yeah the free league game uh, about the nordic horror sort of well, more fairy tales and stuff like that like grim's fairy tales is that there's a bit of a death spiral like things are quite tough in that version of the mutant year zero engine like you don't get a lot of dice and you have to roll sixes on a d6 uh, so if you're only like five in a good pool you've got you're still less likely than more likely to to succeed yeah. and, 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 the and on risky rolls the minute you get yeah, condition yeah. you've got one less dice and after that's you've got it. like three or four that's it that yeah it's quite you're tight done. isn't it like <laughs> yeah so while you might be tempted to play that like reinquest or dnd or something and, and roll all the time like if you do roll lots of dice you will punish the players that'll be crippling for them especially if you give them penalties so the stuff like that i think a lot of people myself included sometimes like come to games i think i know how to do this and it, it definitely bears sort of like playing out of it and tinkering with and seeing how many times you should roll dice if you even if you should at all in some circumstances yeah i think it's different i think i think it, it cycles back a bit to the we didn't roll dice the whole session thing is that like classic advice in burning wheel about say yes or roll the dice about mm. as a gm before us before a, a, a kind of challenge or something if if you're just going to let the players do it then just say yes only roll the dice if it's in in kind of doubt and there's there's lots of little in Bernie Wheel there's lots of like corollaries to that about things like well don't roll more than once for the same thing so if they're rolling to climb up the cliff and they make it then they can climb up the cliff that's fine and if they fail yeah. then they can't climb up the cliff unless something changes or the situation's different you don't mm. you don't make like six rolls for each like 10 foot <laughs> section of the cliff that you might do in other games and, but I think that say yes or roll the dice is sometimes I think the consequence of that for me is that means that when you've got a dice roll you need to have actual stakes attached to it and so if you fail this is going to happen if you succeed this is going to happen it's like don't have dice rolls where there isn't some actual bearing on what happens in the game Hmm. don't have like a perception check to notice something you'll notice anyway but i think sometimes that say yes or roll the dice can go the other way and the gm just says yes because it's easier to say well okay yeah i think you should do that yeah that sounds reasonable go ahead and do it, go ahead and do it. And and that pacing of when you roll and when you don't roll is quite, like you say, it's quite a tricky judgment sometimes and it's different for different games. And I'm sure, like Vason, I think, does explain it quite well that that is quite obvious in the, in the way it's presented. But there are games where working out that kind of system stuff isn't, 
isn't as obvious and you have to do a bit of digging and a bit of experimenting to find out how often how often should I do this and what how difficult is an average skill role like what are the mm. odds really in, in, in this yeah yeah and I think there's um, there's not a well like you and I both like systems so does Baz so there is an element that people want to roll dice quite often the, sort of the other end of people saying they didn't roll any dice all night is other people telling you what they rolled and what the results were and how many sixes <laughs> yeah. they got and things like that you know but you know that that's that's one of the dangers of saying yes or roll the dice and keep saying yes is someone wants to roll some dice i played um a game of Shadowrun in the, in the local shop when it still existed and i got a troll street samurai so i got buckets of dice to throw and with him in a sack next to me ready to yeah. as soon as i got to hit someone and and i planned this ambush and jumped out on this security guard the gym was like no well you know yeah, you kill him. He hasn't got good enough. It's like, what? Yeah. I want to roll. This is the one thing I can do is roll dice to hit people. And you, you're like, yeah, and then then roll for damage, and then do like <laughs> some maths to work out what armor piercing it is and stuff. Yeah, I, yeah, it's that thing about a character sheet. Is like for me, if I'm playing, my character sheet is a bit of like a wish list of stuff that I want to do. So the stuff that I'm good at on that character sheet, I want to have a chance to do it, and I want to mm. have like if I've got if I've got persuasion at eighty percent or whatever. I want to make persuasion rolls, and I, I know that I'm going to make them most of the time. Just mm. like your troll, you, you playing a troll with a bucket full of dice. Oh, this is going to be really good. I'm going to roll loads. Like you know, it's it, it's it's going to be. It's not necessarily you want to be challenged massively by it. But you want a chance to like let your character shine. I think it's Apocalypse World, isn't it? Be a fan of the characters is yeah. is the thing there. And I think I think you sometimes it's not so often you see it in combat, but you do see it with social skills quite a lot that. You know, if I'm playing like a, a face character or something, I've got really good social skills, and I'm trying to persuade someone. If the GM then says, "Oh, yeah, it's really you're really convincing," he, he goes for it. That's a bit of a letdown because I, I want to actually yeah. use the stuff that I've spent points on or spent time training, and it's it's, it's weird, isn't yeah. it? It's like if I've got fireball written down, I want a chance to use it. I don't like because mm. it's it's not something that happens in fights, is it? Like you don't get into a barroom brawl. And the gem goes, oh, do you know what? You're a tenth level fighter. You beat them all up, and yeah, then that's yeah. it. He's done. Like the fire would be like, what? <laughs> I've got my D twenty ready. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, it's, I think it's that hand wavy stuff, and it's it's a really tricky judgment to make because I think sometimes GMs think, oh, well, we'll just we'll gloss over this because it's not important. But you don't always know what the important bits are to your players, hmm. like what bits yeah. they will shine at, and it's yeah, it's a tricky judgment to make and. I suppose I suppose the GM advice bit is maybe check in. Like, do we want to make this a set piece or like read the room? Is this like, is your warm up fight in the barroom brawl going to be like actually really cool and fun, even though it's not connected to the dragon and the giants and all that? Um, mm -hmm. Or is it okay? Yeah, this is just a warm up thing. We don't need to do this. I don't know. Yeah, and I think there's different there's different tools for doing different things as well, isn't there? So I'll, I'll reiterate your caveat because I know some people get upset sometimes but you can play games however you want we're not <laughs> dictating to you how you should play games but there are definitely different ways different systems uh, impact what happens around the table and, and and how you can engage with them and i think one of the the dangers of not really reading all the advice or not using the system uh, fully yeah. is that you miss out on all that and then all games become the same and then you fall in a trap of saying it doesn't really matter what we play and yeah. uh, i am more the other way and think if you have a, a different style in mind there's probably a better system than another one for playing something of that ilk so yeah. when we had one of the uh, D, D designers on for example he, he suggested that you could use D, &D 
to be, have a show about like cooking or about the Great British Bake Off or something like that. And it's kind of like you could you could run for sure a D and D campaign that was based on that, but I don't think the D and D rule set necessarily helps you do that. You know, yeah. it doesn't. There's not a lot in the book that helps you achieve yeah. your, that goal. Yeah, that's it. And it's how much the system helps and the system drives the plot or the narrative as it's going on. And so, like, if I was going to do a Great British Bake Off thing, a system like Hill Folk, which, again, this is going to be a, a, a system where you're not going to roll any dice and you're not really going to do... It, it's almost entirely... Nine out of ten scenes are just going to be dramatic, like seeking respect or acknowledgement from people rather than actually doing anything. That supports that game really, really well. So that 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 game would would have that. You'd have drama and passion and all that kind of thing. That there, there is. I have. It won't surprise you to learn. I have run a competitive cookie game. Uh, there's a fate. <laughs> there's a fate world called Uranium Chef, which is like a sci-fi, like uh, Master Chef thing. And that's got all the fate things about building up aspects. Obviously, like bits of your like um, bits of the dish that you're making up and things. And that works really well because it's got all that all that advice to it. I I can't see like I, I can see in theory, yeah. You might just change the skills list in D and D to have icing and uh, <laughs> um, whipping, and uh, I don't I don't know much. Of, this isn't a baking podcast, is it? So we're probably okay. Um, but it doesn't like even like competitive stuff doesn't really work in D and D. Like it's not. Is it just who rolls highest? I, I don't know. Like you can yeah. do that. You can certainly hack something to to do that, but look around and see if there's another game that, 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 that plays it better then and and look at games I would always say look at um, like Fate Savage Worlds look at generic games that are really flexible that have that kind of thing baked in that are mm. designed as you read the you read the book and it tells you right if you want to do this kind of game do this um, Cortex yeah. is the one Cortex do a, do a uh, baking baking show on Cortex I think I look forward to a plethora of baking-based scenarios when uh, finally conventions start again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> next Seven Hills theme, but yeah, competitive baking. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent stuff. So we've mentioned that there are a lot of different ways of doing different things. Uh, what what other systems do you think you have, or if you can maybe pick just the top top couple or whatever you've got to mind to do something interesting? That perhaps you don't see normally, or that have been introduced. I mean, I, maybe I think probably what would be quite cool is if it if you can be applied elsewhere. So I'll go back to Vessen again as an example yeah. to start off, and I, this is true of um, things like uh, Music Year Zero as well. Is that they have a, a, a sort of base building element to it. So there's a location that the characters have to start with, and part of the system is getting sort of like base building XP, I can't remember what the, the correct term is for them, and then that allows you to get improvements to your thing, that then gives you bonuses when you go out of venture later, or whatever, and that kind of stuff, so I think having like a separate character sheet and a mechanic for like something that the, the PCs all have together is quite cool in those games, but I think that would be quite transportable, for example, to D&D or something else you wanted to do like, you know, don't don't necessarily have your, your D&D character starting off as roving bandits, or murder hobos or whatever else that you might have our way of doing it will be starting them off inheriting a castle or something like that and then having them having to discover parts about it or go out and venture to get money to pay the refurbishment costs and get it you know back in condition and all that kind of stuff i think forbidden lands and others have done a couple of things like that yeah and you could do i can i can i'm just thinking aloud saying in D &D it'd be quite you know you could have things like okay you've got a library of kind of monsters and stuff that you can buy and that means you can get advantage once a fight to hit some kind of 
beast that's that's covered in it or whatever it's quite a, yeah that's quite a good way and it's it's nice to have that it's a bit like a blade in the blades in the dark having a crew sheet isn't it that actually yeah. the group grows as the as the characters grow as well and that there's something kind of working working that they're working towards that they're, they're all kind of joined together with um i think i I think the one that I would pick that I that I do use in loads and loads of different games is the Thirteenth Age montage thing. That actually mm-hmm. having an idea, and I mean generally being able to, more generally being able to get players to maybe step out of that player stance and be a bit more author director stance. Because the thing that's really cool about, well, the thing that I think often people say <laughs> is really cool about having a, a session where they don't roll the dice is you get to find out a lot about the characters, and you can do that by like role-playing them going to the shops and buying new armor yeah or a better way to do that for me is to say right let's have a scene where your half-up barbarian is relaxing after his adventure what's he doing what's it look like what's on his mind and actually it's up to the player to set that scene and make it what his house looks like and and, and just we have a little vignette of what they're doing mm. 13th age montages are a little more formalized in that you the players come up with challenges and then pass it on for the next player to resolve it works that works really well for having that kind of zoom out a bit and doing like the, a, a long journey a long perilous journey that's that's not immediately relevant to the plot but lets you find out about see the players being awesome without worrying mm. too much about skills that's and i suppose that is that is doing it without rolling the dice it's a structured interaction but you, you're not actually using the skills in your character sheet except maybe as inspiration to do that i mean it works in 13th age because for the rest of the game you're going to be using your couch sheet a lot and rolling a lot of dice all the time. Um, yeah. So it helps to kind of give that that flexibility and that that expertise. So yeah, montages or generally that right describe a scene where whatever's happening works for me. Yeah, yeah, and they even have bits of that in the new Delta Green, for example. You have home yeah. scenes to describe, uh, and you sort of have one that bookends the session um, as a difference from what happens during the session, and to sort of like measure the impact that someone's having and give them a bit of humanity to your agents. Yeah. So they're not just going off shooting things and going mad and whatever else. Uh, and again, things like Tales from the Loop or whatever has their home scenes because they want to create <clears throat> a juxtaposition yeah. between the boring home life and then the exciting solving mysteries bit. Yeah, and I mean, my my experience of playing Tales from the Loop and running it is that often like those home scenes are the bits where the emotions really come out. They're like the most, they're the most kind of touching and, and affecting scenes in it because like you've just come back from investigating the kids and often your home life is like more problematic and terrifying and certainly close to home for you as players than it is yeah. finding these mysterious robots in the wood a bit i suppose a bit like in the actual well now they've made the tv series of it there's a bit of that there isn't there as well that actually mm. there's the kind of children's adventure bit and then there's the um kind of soap opera bit when they come back and and do that that's that's similar that's a bit i think that has the um that can be called and described by the gm or by the players in it doesn't it Mm. You have some kind of negotiation. What if you could ask for a home seed and negotiate where it that's is right. for the player? Yeah. So. yeah, yeah. I think it's got, and that, that sort of like uh, circles back to what you're saying about uh, as long as it's a conscious decision to not roll dice, yeah. it feels like it's all right. And I think that's that's it. Uh, and and that those sort of systems then give you a balance where people who want to roll dice get to do it at a certain point in the adventure, and those who want to chew the scenery a bit have explicit periods where they can do that as well, almost. Uh, yeah. and, and it's it's sort of not it's not strictly telling people what they can do when, but it gives you some kind of structure. I think that's probably what we look for in some games as well, isn't it? Just like like how the beats of the game should go, or it's, you need possibly a framework sometimes to a role playing session, and not just 
a set of rules telling you how to roll perception. It stops as well a situation where maybe one of the players is really into it and is role playing their like awkward relationship with their spouse for half an hour while the rest of them are kind of sat waiting for the goblins to arrive <laughs> and do that. I don't know. I was I was thinking. I, I think. I think sometimes this not rolling the dice. I think sometimes streaming has something to do with it. Uh, stream mm-hmm. shows, and I'm not. You know, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I don't. I don't watch many of them, but I'm, I'm not going to hit on critical role or criticize it too much. But there is a thing when when you watch a stream show. For the first part, there are episodes where they kind of go shopping and don't do a lot of plot, and so I think there's a bit of how that's really entertaining and is a thing, and so has been become a thing in people's games. And I think that's perhaps about the difference between watching as an as an audience some voice actors like actually act and do their role playing compared to <laughs> yeah. sitting there and being that. I'm not sure. Well, that they can they can get in touch, can't they? But I'm not sure how much fun those sessions are for the actual people playing in them. If you see what I mean. <laughs> yeah. And and also, I think often when you see the first episode of a stream show. It it, ta- it it can really take its time introducing the characters kind of one by one and having a proper kind of 20 minutes half an hour if you're like the last one round the table I, I always think of watching them if I was sat there next to the GM on the far side <laughs> I've had to sit here for like two and a half hours before I even get a go at being a goblin like this is kind of you, you could watch a Lord of the Rings film and that's why you weren't if you're yeah, yeah 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 I, sh- I don't know why I showed up on time I could have just come up for a sound check and then uh, go down the pub and come back or something but yeah I, again I think it's that it's there's a whole other podcast in it isn't there about the streaming and playing and the difference between them and again I think those th- those episodes are really interesting to watch because of the audience of really talented people doing what they do professionally um, I think having it in your own game and trying to replicate that is not. And certainly, my approach to shopping in games tends to be like, "Yep, it's chapter six. Off you go." Mm. Oh, can I find it? Yeah, you can. Just do it between games, like whenever they've got everything. Something weird, yeah. ask me. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I even don't mind systems that are kind of like you've got stuff. Like, just <laughs> we'll assume yeah. you brought appropriate things for your profession. You don't need to buy lockpicks if you're a thief. I'll just assume you've got some from somewhere. Yeah, you've got an adventurous <laughs> kit, which is just pretty much covers you with everything. Yeah. Having said that, talking about equipment, that's that's another interesting one. I'll keep banging about Vesson, probably because I've looked at it recently. But uh, that's one where if you do have some kit, the bits that are called out are things that definitely give you bonuses in certain circumstances yeah. or for certain skills. So that's useful. But even then, on top of that, it kind of has... Um, uh, not resources, but a capital, I think they call it, but some kind of mechanic for if you want to buy stuff when you're out, then you can make a roll or, or spend some points yeah, and yeah. get extra things while you're on your trip. But it only matters for things that are crucial and then will give you a bonus, you know. Yeah, gone are the days for me anyway where, like, if you haven't got rope, you can't climb the cliff or whatever. It's just like, <laughs> oh, got yeah. really... If only I'd brought an 11-foot pole, I could actually <laughs> use it in this 10-foot pit. It's every time, isn't it? Yeah. Well, will 50 feet of rope be enough? Or will they have cottoned on to the fact that all the adventurers have 50 feet? <laughs> That's right. Will they make it 55 feet? This, this every way? lich has added 10% to their chasms just to kind of... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, it's that, isn't it? And again, that comes down a bit to like equipment being interesting and being being useful. Like 13th Age, there's quite an inter- a good thing with equipment where... Like magic items in 13th age, you never just have a plus one sword. It's always got a little quirk or a little story hook attached to it. Um, and you, you'll get it with your icon roll at the start. You won't, you don't just accumulate it and then like, oh, which of my magical items armory, which plus one longsword will I use today that I managed to find? 
um, out, out adventuring. Um, I think I was going to say. I mean, I, I think probably better be clear about the idea of. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of when we're saying oh, rolling the dice and, and actually engaging with the system. I'm a big fan of having a lot of role play in, for instance, a fight scene, if that makes sense. So while you're fighting the goblins, while your troll street samurai is jumping out, I, I like I like it when players can describe what they're doing and give a bit of insight, and actually you can learn a bit about the characters even while we're kind of actually engaged fully in the combat and so on. Yes. No, exactly. As we sort of said at the outset, role plus player plus game. Like we do like the game element, but that doesn't mean you can't do some role playing as well. And that means introducing the role of your character. And by the definition of how you describe what they do all the time, yeah. that should bring things out about them. I think that's that is key. And um, it is all elements as well. You know, it's, it's. I think what we're suggesting people might avoid if they want a more rounded experience is to not just like focus on one thing. Yeah. So I know some people do like playing, um, you know, Pathfinder or DD four E and just rolling dice, and get them to say anything else other than, you know, I hit it with my axe or I use my yeah. fireball, is like pulling teeth. That that's my personal like the the worst moment in, it's well it's the worst the it's probably the second worst moment in any kind of D and D or Pathfinder game if, I, if if I'm running it. The worst is when this is an aside, but the worst is when you like offered a fee to go down the dungeon or do what you were going to do anyway. And the players start to negotiate with it. So, oh, maybe two hundred gold isn't much. I, I don't like that. But the, the second worst thing is when it's like round three of a combat, and the fighter maybe gets to the stage where they don't even say anything; they just roll the dice. Yeah, it's like you can't. You've not even described whether you hit. I mean, like we all just know you're going to hit it, and that's it. And you, you, there's no verbal communication, no description of anything. Just a dice gets rolled, and then if it's above a certain number, you roll another dice. And that's just that's just that. try and keep it moving. Some of that, I suppose, mm. is combat design, isn't it? And having yes. interesting stuff happen that you have to that you have to um, react to. But yeah, it's having that opportunity in fights. And I think Feng Shui is a good game for that, isn't it? In terms of the GM advice in there that you you should make your descriptions as out there as possible, and bring in as much stuff from the from scenery and things as, as you can. Yeah, so there's a couple of games. As you mentioned, Opportunity. I'm sure it's it's either Star Wars or one of those similar FFG games where you have opportunities and threats. And that's extra little symbols on your dice, which say they're not like to hit or anything, but they're extra bits that say, and you get some sort of advantage. What does that look like? Or if it's a threat, it's the, the GM's got the opportunity to say, yeah. and here's something to your detriment that also happens when you're going along. So that's that's like a cool way of adding things. Um, I'm thinking about the Expanse and the Age system as well. That has a drama dice. And then when yeah. you get a doubles the, uh, under the dice, it clicks in, and you can spend stunt points to do cool stuff. I think that's that sort of um, system thing. It, it might be a bit tougher to implement in a different world, like D and D or something, perhaps. But it's good when systems have extra bits that explicitly tell the players and/or the GM to go do something else as well. Like you know, you've done yeah. your thing, you've hit it with the axe, and what else? Because you have to. Like this. There's an explicit thing in the rules that says now you must give us more. You can't yeah. just say I hit it. Like you've got to have done something else cool as well. What is it? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's and I think in terms of again, while we're talking about techniques that we can you can use in any game, I think the idea of having skill challenges where the players have some input into what skill they use is is really good as well. So how do you approach this problem? Um, and giving them options for what to do. If, if you've got to negotiate with a truculent merchant, you could uh, intimidate him. You might try and persuade him. Um, you might set up some kind of elaborate ruse um, with somebody else, and, and different players can be doing different things. I think that that thing of um, that takes a bit of the pressure off the GM as well. 
So not thinking about how the players will solve this problem, just have an open-ended issue and turn it to them, right, what are you going to try and do? There's nothing that's specifically planned to be, this will definitely work, this definitely won't, and let them kind of lead that a little bit in, in, in how they do it and then make the role and see where it goes. Yeah, what do you think to the idea that there might be uh, different difficulties or something depend on the approach taken? So you, like what you're saying, that's quite open, and I'm down with it generally to kind of just let people move on. Yeah. Um, but given that some people might have a high persuade and someone else has got, you know, a high bribery or whatever, it could lead to the, a situation where somebody's always persuading or always bribing someone, and then the skills sort of become interchangeable in a certain way. Anyway. It's sometimes worth, I think, having some approaches lead to benefits or or less difficult because otherwise, everybody. Because we played a game quite recently where I think everybody was just using their best stat all the time yeah. and just kept mashing the same button, and without any other reason not to. Like, I mean, why wouldn't you, you just keep doing <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, why, why so. wouldn't I do this? I'm best at it. Yeah. I think I think that's good. I think dif- different difficulties is a good way to keep it fresh. Like say, one thing that I would say with that one caveat to that is. I think that's really good. I think you should. I think that should be telegraphed really well by the GM, though. So mm. kind of make it obvious. I'm. I'm not a fan of. Oh, actually, you won't. Uh, you can't bribe him because he's actually filthy rich. Even though there's nothing to reveal that he is, bribery won't work. And then it's kind of a guess what's in my head, like guess what's <laughs> in my prep notes thing. That's I'm thinking of a number. Which one is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pick a skill, and I'll tell you if it's the right one. Um, but having clues in how that how that npc or how that challenge is presented that would lead to that i think is is really important so you can think and that allows the player to think actually i was gonna i was gonna use persuade but i think he's a bit more aggressive here maybe i'll try a different approach it's, mm. it's better than just oh yeah try that it didn't work because of this thing that you don't know about <laughs> like in the, in the yeah. past i think and i think i mean one one thing that's really um one way of doing it that's really good is the one rings um encounter system which is its kind of social conflict thing because mm. that's quite structured and it's it, i mean it's like every skill challenge it's like a series of dice rolls and you've got to get a set number of successes before a number of failures um but the first part of it is really structured because the first part of it um, and it fits really well with the like talking source material is you meet an important npc and you the first thing you do is you introduce yourself and so you introduce yourself you say who you are you say what you what, what your character's done and then you make a role, which is usually courtesy, but it might be or it might be a, a, a different skill in there. And then you have a bit of back and forth. And that that's really good for, for getting a measure of the NPC and what they're into and what they're impressed by. But yeah. Also, it gives that little kind of confessional moment for the player. So you get a mm-hmm. little bit of an insight into what they're actually thinking and what they're feeling about. Um, gives them a chance to kind of really give that kind of moment to camera where they say what they're what they're like and find out a little bit about what they're thinking yeah yeah and i like it for sort of enforcing a certain like if if you go down a certain road then you kind of like your character's stuck with it to a degree so yeah of all the different social skills you have if you pick or for example is the one you're going to have because you think well i can use this to like bully goblins as well and stuff like that so i'll stick yeah. lots of points in that it does mean that every social encounter you, you're trying to awe people which when it's the local villages in some woodman village might be all right but then later on, when you're in like 
some dwarven hall and the king's asking you some questions and the only option you've got is to like try and intimidate him and, and yeah. bluster your way past it's a bit like oh this this could go really badly wrong <laughs> <laughs> yeah i should i mean the one ring it works really well as well because it's it's automatically quite high stakes because the people you, you negotiate with are like bjorn or like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or gandalf or something so there's already this kind of oh no radagast <laughs> might not like us this is this is like the whole history of my gaming might fall apart in this one scene. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'll try and bully Gandalf. Okay then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I, I guess another aspect to look at then is is like how much do GMs engage with system? Because one of the things that um, slightly irks me is when GMs say things like, "Oh, just make me roll," or "Just roll high," or "Don't get a one." Yeah. Or things which are clearly not in the game book that I'm, I'm being faced with, and they're just saying stuff. So I guess that's the other aspect for me around using the system and why you use systems and, and, and picking the right one for the job is part of that is the contract of like you say you're playing Savage Worlds or the One Ring or whatever, and you expect a certain style of game. And if the GM approaches it in a way that's vanilla and how they run all the games, then you're not getting. The benefit of a different system, I would suggest. There, you're really being—it is quite generic at that point. Yeah, I, I think it's different in one shots and in campaigns um, yeah. to some extent, and I think it's more of an issue in one shots and more of an issue in convention games where you don't know. And and I'm the same. If I'm like, if if I've signed up to play the game, part of it will be the system, and quite often I'll play a game because it's like I really want to try, I don't know, two D twenty Conan or something. I want to try have it run by somebody who knows the system or will do the system so if I go in and they're like oh we just roll 1d20 in this game I'm like oh wait a minute that's not like <laughs> whereas in, in a campaign so I'll give an example like the group that we're in on Tuesday I've it's kind of an established thing that if you have like a, a, a an ongoing skill challenge I'm probably going to do uh, four successes before three failures skill challenge mm-hmm. and that's well that's not been in any of the games that that <laughs> that I've run, has it? Um, but it's kind of, it, it's an agreed thing now with the group that that's just how we do things. And if you've got an established, all right, well, when we do this, you just roll a dice and roll high, then that's part of the social contract and how the game evolves um, mm. from there. But I, I, I think, again, it comes with that caveat of don't, if you're, if you're having to drift a game that much, you might want to look and see what other games are out there. If, if you're doing that a lot in your campaign, then maybe like Savage Worlds isn't the game for it. Like mm. <laughs> if you're just not rolling dice and have very little combat and there's a lot of kind of angst and talking to one another, yeah, may- maybe Savage Worlds isn't the game you should be you should be playing with. Um, maybe yeah. you should look around and see if there's a better system that will give that experience that you want. Yeah, for sure. Uh, again, with caveat upon caveat, that <laughs> if it's if you do it knowingly, I think that's the thing that. Um, Perhaps where I get it is that if you've looked at the rules and decide, well, this thing doesn't quite work, like the ship combat rules in Shadow of the Demon Lord might decide that they're just not worth it for the for the amount of effort we put yeah. in, like the, the value we get out's not, not good enough, that's fine. I think probably um just be wary as a gem of, of cutting things out before trying them or because you think they won't work or because you know, on a whim without actually bearing in mind what the impact of that is. Yeah, that's probably worse. And I think I mean there's a thing as well about actually actually trying rules as written as well because mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of games on a read-through you wouldn't necessarily know how effective they are or not right. so yeah. so give it a go you know i've i 
I, I, I don't really use when I run D&D I don't really use the D&D chase rules I have tried them and they're not you know they're, they're, they're as with many chase rules they're not the best part of the system for me <laughs> but I can see why they're designed like that the key thing for me is they stick with initiative which for me just doesn't work in a chase because it's like right you go first right I travel 60 feet in front okay right you've caught them straight away <laughs> so, <laughs> So I, I, there are aspects of it that are really good because they have like a little random table. After you've had your go, you roll on a table. And if it's one to 10 on the D20, something exciting happens that the next person has to roll on. So that aspect of it, you can keep. But I tend to do a more kind of, right, we just make some athletics rolls and move from one to the other. So try the rules because you don't necessarily know that they're not going to work. And sometimes, you know, sometimes rules, rules can read really complex. And in play, mm. they're kind of not that bad. I've just started mm-hmm. running Star Trek and extended tasks get a bit of a bad rep often if you look on the forums but they're fairly straightforward I've two sessions in they're pretty straightforward they work quite well to do things like repairing a ship works really well in extended tasks yeah yeah for sure yeah it works both ways doesn't it sometimes you look at rules on the paper and they, they seem like they're going to be amazing and you think oh that, that reads really well that's great and then in play it's just like super clunky or you know your success rates aren't where you think they're going to be and that kind of stuff and conversely sometimes you look at things and think well that sounds bobbins but you actually roll some dice around the table and you can bring stuff out to the session which you weren't expecting because yeah. uh, not not all games are just about rolling some dice to get a, a target number aren't they because that, that's how a lot of games certainly were written back in the day and people will still play that many years later that that's fine but I think you can find if you mess around and get different systems and try different things out there are different experiences you get just by what you roll dice for and what it tells you to do or who gets to speak or you know all manner of things i think rules aren't necessarily just about rolling initiative and hitting target numbers there's all kinds of extra bits and pieces can come out of them once you start playing different things yeah i think well running different games and playing different games and in at some point in the future when like conventions start happening face to face again that's a really good way, isn't it, of getting to play mm-hmm. lots of different systems, lots of different GMing styles, um, trying running for different kinds of players and so on. That's that's a good way to kind of broaden your horizons um, and think about it. Even if you go to, even if you run D&D all the time and go to a con and, you know, play in five different D&D games, you're going to get five quite different experiences from them. Even if they're all running really tight adventurers league, you know, sanctioned, whatever, organized play society things, in terms of just how GMs describe stuff, it can be really, really different. And it and, yes. and, and you can sponge ideas really easily from that. And even if sometimes, I think both of us, have, everyone listening will be in a situation where you're at a con, you play a game that you don't have the best time in, and you always learn stuff from it. Yeah. And there's always little things about, oh, that worked, that didn't really work. And you can kind of reflect on your own game and your own play and your own GMing and think, oh, maybe I'll add that in, maybe, I'll, maybe, I'll, maybe I do that as well. That thing that I didn't think went that well actually I did that a few weeks ago in that campaign maybe I should maybe I should turn it down a bit because from the player's side that looked a bit rubbish yes kind of yeah, yeah yeah play from two different sides of the screen gives you different experiences doesn't it so what about uh, rules that involve GM fiat then while we're talking about that kind of stuff so uh, I'm thinking around uh, if your player gives a good enough description of how they persuade someone then they get plus two on the persuasion roll or you know give extra experience to the person who was the best role player this week or things like that how, how do you feel about stuff that's requires some kind of value judgment from a gm or from the table as a whole about someone getting extra bonuses or, or stuff because that effectively means other people are getting penalized in some way as well 
Yeah, I, th- I think the two examples that you gave are quite similar, actually. Um, and that that that's that's my problem with that kind of thing for the GM making a judgment that the you get extra XP because you're the best role player, and you get a bonus to persuade because you acted really well. Are kind of the same thing, and I'm not. I, I just I don't like to have that power as a GM, and I don't think it's fair when you might have a game where half the players have been playing for 20 years RPGs and things and half the players might have been playing for a couple of weeks um, it, it just isn't I, I, I'm behind it where it's something that the table does so where there's kind of a way to give like fan fan mail I think isn't it in primetime adventures you, That's give, right, yeah. you give fan mail and then you can spend it that Ten Rabancho Zero has um, little chits that you give as if you're the audience in a scene you can give people chits um, and they are for good role playing, but like everyone gets them and everyone can hand them out. And in play, there's just chits flying around all the time, and it's a real kind of buzz. And you end up with a big pile of them that at the end of the scene you convert into extra dice and things. Um, I like it where it's a where it's a collaborative thing. Then I, I'm in favour of it. I don't I don't like I don't like a GM deciding who's role played it well and hasn't. And mm. I really don't like having to make that decision myself. Um, mm. Because yeah, you're right. It penalises somebody, and it, it's it's not about being the best at describing something or acting or pretending to be an elf is it it's about your character being convincing <laughs> yeah, um, right. it shouldn't be that competitive thing of it I yeah know, I mean, did you answer I, the way you asked that question i could i could surmise your view on it from there but um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you think about that guys anyway it's a contrasting viewpoint oh what a, what a, what a great idea i love judging people <laughs> Some people do it selling. Like I like to make it obvious. No, <laughs> yeah, no, it's rubbish. Anything where you kind of, they still get a lot of games today have that kind of thing in them, and and it's like I'll oh, get one point for doing this and one point for doing that, and you know you get one XP for showing up and you know, all this kind of rubbish, and it's like just give everybody the same. Like stop messing about. Um, and I think that the difficulty with doing it in game, saying if you describe something particularly well, then get bonuses. Is that some people are just better at describing things than others are, or some are more witty or sharp yeah. and can think about it easier. And some some people are just a bit more shy or take a little while to think about things or whatever else. So, if you're giving mechanical system benefits to someone just because of a natural trait they've got, I mean, it just seems rubbish. You you don't give like the strongest player around the table extra bonuses in kicking indoors because they happen to be physically fit. <laughs> so like, why why does the talky player get special bonuses? You know, I just don't do it. Is, is my view. Yeah, and it's also you, you. You generally only see it done for social skills, don't you? It's not. Yeah. Nobody says, "Oh, well, your description of picking that lock was so accurate and detailed. Um, I'm going to give you a bonus. In fact, I'm just going to let you pick that lock because you knew how to do it, so your character would." That's not how it works, is it? It's not so. at all. No. I think the worst instance I've had was playing. Uh, it was playing a fake game, but I, I like. I described leaping over this pool table to kick someone. And then the GM gave me a penalty because it was more difficult to kick them by tripping <laughs> over the table. It's like, says you right, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, making life more difficult. It's like you're you're basically telling me in this game not to add any description because you might find a reason to take dice off me. You're like what? I, th- I think that circles back to the read the actual um, GM section of games as well. So <laughs> I think if you read Fake Core, <laughs> that's, it's that's more on the encouraging rule. kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Quite the opposite, in fact, is what uh, Fate would encourage you to do. 
Yeah. It's tricky. I mean, I, I, I go further and I think there are a few games where you get like a... Because, um, yeah, XP awards, I'm like, everyone should get the same. It doesn't matter. And I, I'm even a bit against... Like, I kind of tend to give people XP even if they don't show up to the session. Mm. Because, like, we're all grown-ups. Like, it, it's not... Unless somebody's really just taking the piss. And generally they aren't. If you can't make a session in an evening and everyone else is playing without you, you've probably got a very good reason for it. It's not like you need to be incentivized to actually come around and play the game. Like that's the, the, the benefit of playing the game is that you get to hang out and pretend to be dwarves or whatever. Like, yeah. And the fact that, oh, I, I couldn't come that night because I don't know, it was my kid's birthday or something. It, that's just rubbish. What? And so they're lower level than everyone now. That's what are you <laughs> Says doing? a right How for hard? having children. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just, and I mean that, I think that, that more broadly goes into the thing about descriptions and so on. Like, you know, if you're playing in the evenings, you know, we're playing in the evenings at the moment, particularly, you know, we're in the middle of a, a lockdown situation. Some people have had a really tough time of it. Some people are super, super busy. Some people aren't as busy. So around your table, there's going to be people who are going to be ready to bring absolutely everything to the game and be fired on. That's, that's kind of what they've done all day, apart from watching Netflix. And then you have people <laughs> who've just done like nine hours at work, absolutely punishing it. You can't like say... Oh, your role play wasn't as good as, as his, though. <laughs> Just like, come on, let's be grown-ups about it. I know you got a full-time job and you're homeschooling three kids, but, like, put some effort in. Like... Yeah, I'm sorry, I wasn't convinced by, uh, by, <laughs> by that half-orc accent that you did. Cause, and you even, I mean, you have some games. I mean, Star Trek Adventures, I'm really enjoying winning it, but one of the first things that I do is look at the XP system. It's got a, like, spotlight milestone, so you have... Um, you all get an advancement. Well, it's not really an advancement, but you all get an XP thing each session. And then one person gets a, um, a spotlight milestone, but they get more. And the kind of rules as written, there is a bit of a like, you've got to have role played well bit in it. It's couched in the system, but you've got to challenge the value and things. And it's just that thing of, it doesn't really sit right with me. It's a bit like Mouse Guard used to have a most valued player award where yeah. the table would vote for them. And I, I did try to do that. And I, 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 don't, I think it might be a cultural thing. It doesn't work in the UK that everyone's just like, oh, we'll just take it in turns. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you won it last week. Oh, I think it should be. I think it should be you. Oh, no, no, I couldn't possibly. It's not me. You were much better. No, your role playing was much better. You know, so just let's take that out. And just, I mean, stuff like that's easy to hack. Just, yeah. just take it in turns. Just, <laughs> just give everyone the same XP award. Just do it. Well, the best things about D&D... Um, that they did with a new edition is just to have milestone leveling. Yes. I know there is a system where you can just award XP and stuff. And people can have a spreadsheet where they add up how many monsters have killed and stuff. But to, to make it kind of a core rule that just level up when the GM says you level up and everyone does is so much more straightforward and kind yeah. of reflects what games should be, really. Just level up when you level up and that's it. Yeah, agreed. Yes. So as we come towards the end of the cast then uh, what what are some good rules that you've come across uh, and whether they're applicable broadly or not doesn't really matter but like cool things in games so uh, again I can kick you off with an example in Hot War um, which has traits so you might have uh, burned by treachery or other things like that you know um, socially awkward whatever it might be uh, just like short descriptors a bit like you have aspects in fate and that kind of thing and the cool bit about them is that um, they give you a dice to your dice pool, or a die to your dice pool. Um, but they can be positive or negative, and it doesn't matter. They all give you extra dice to your dice pool. I think that's 
They have a different color, and if your negative one comes out top value, then yeah. something bad happens and stuff. So that, that's that's a neat way of doing it. But the bit I particularly like about that mechanic is it's not taking anything away from the player. It's always giving you more dice to roll, because a lot of games have penalties or taking dice off people, and I like the fact that that particular system means that whether you've got five negative traits or five positive ones, yeah. you're adding five extra dice to your pool and get to roll more dice and more cool stuff might happen. Yeah, yeah, that's cool, that's cool. Um, the one that I've got is, I think, harder to... Well, it depends on the game, harder to implement more broadly, but um, so there are other games that have it as well. But it, Tenra Banjo Zero was the first time I came across it. It's got a reverse death spiral. So as you take damage, you get extra dice to everything. So basically, as the, as the kind of game goes on, you're incentivized to throw yourself into combat, throw yourself into danger. It has another little tweak where you can choose which wound boxes you tick off. So you hmm. can choose to tick off the, um, the like dying box, and then you get like three extra dice to everything, but that box is gone. Um, yeah. So and that's that's really cool because it stops that thing of it's really exciting at the start of the session. Everyone gets into a fight. It used to happen in uh, World of Darkness games a lot. You know, it's massive werewolf battle at the start and then everyone's a bit beaten up and then you get into like the climax of the session and there's some big bad you've got to fight and everyone's on like two less dice because they've taken loads of aggravated damage so <laughs> everyone's everyone's really cautious there's like oh well maybe we should just uh, wait and not tackle him and it, it just kind of de-incentivizes an exciting plot so yeah mm. reverse death spiral so making people more powerful as they get injured for doing more dangerous stuff works in the right kind of game yeah yeah there's one it's not not quite the same but uh in dread it was called the original dread not the one with the jenga uh, and now pandemonio uh has a thing where when you when you die or when you're due to die you get like a ton of like points back and a lot all your health and yeah. like get double your health points back so you can purely so you can go out in a blaze of glory at the end at the end of it you will die but it's just kind of like it doesn't take you out of that final climactic battle yeah. it's kind of like have loads of extra stuff and then tell us about your glorious death at the end or what your pithy parting statement is to your friends as you lie there bleeding from all the holes in your you know that kind of stuff which, yeah, which is really yeah. cool that's really cool I've got I mean I've got a, a, another one that is broadly applicable and I do it I think I do it in every single con game that I run almost is to have the bit at the start where you might introduce characters and you might have them all walk into a tavern one after the other and describe what they look like and give their background and you get some players that give this lengthy description of their entire family tree and you get some that say, I'm a dwarf, I've got an axe, beard. Um, instead of that, instead of them introducing them, just establish that the group already knows one another and set it up like the start of a TV series where you're going to see a clip of each character in turn with the actor that plays them doing something cool. And so instead of describing their dwarf as being, he's got an axe, a beard, um, they get to describe them like leaping off a cliff onto some ogre's head and smiting his his arm off and it just it gives that kind of action description role play thing where they all meet a little bit of uh, grounding and it means you get to describe what your character looks like in in a much more exciting way than just to list off kind of physical attributes mm. um, and it gives a little bit of a link side by side with that would be the thing that um apocalypse world games do and um well, I think all the free league games do where you have bonds to each other character so you have a statement um, like so and so always has my back Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I can trust so and so and at the start of the game you pick different characters in the group for that to be and that's quite a good starting point to get some emergent like inter-character 
party dynamics so you've got something to go on rather than just being completely new to one another as you start at the beginning yeah definitely yeah yeah and that, that's not necessarily system based is it like you say you can hack that quite easily but it's one of the things that always makes my roll my eyes when you know someone will ask oh do we all know each other and the gem thinks about it and goes uh no probably not and I just think, oh no so yes so yes we do know each other <laughs> the awkward bit of interactions first except that now you're a dwarf <laughs> yeah like there's, there's players who might not all know each other as well now our characters don't either it's like yeah. we want to do two sets of icebreakers now to get to a point where we're comfortable with each other yeah yeah totally <laughs> yeah I, I guess I mean, it's, it's similar to that world one but in, in uh, Vampire now V5 they've got a, a hunger mechanic so it's, the old rules were kind of like you have blood points that you spend to use powers uh, and this one is you get hunger dice which again are a different colour and bad things can happen if you roll particular things with them Yeah. but uh, it, it's that kind of like you can keep using your powers as much as you want but every time you do there's a chance you'll get more hunger dice and eventually even you can black out and the GM takes over your character for a little bit and gives you back so you, know, you wake up in this strange place covered in blood yeah. and you don't know what happened yeah similar alien yeah anything with like escalating mechanics where like you can have yeah. you can have more stuff or you, you don't penalised but there is a penalty if you keep pushing that button do you want to keep pushing it and most times players are like yes of course I keep mashing that button until something really bad happens and he goes oh that's quite dangerous actually isn't it we, perhaps we shouldn't press the button so much <laughs> I think I mean Alien has that with its stress dice, doesn't it as well? And it, yeah. it's the same. Having extra dice is a really good way of doing it because it's quite a tactile thing. Yeah. Where you've got that feeling of, on the one hand, oh, I've got loads of dice in my hands now. This is a really big dice pool, but like six of them are red. <laughs> <It's>, um, <laughs> you're very aware of the risk that you're taking while you're doing it. It's uh, it's good that kind of escalation rather than uh, emotion is really cool. Yeah, yeah, and it's good in the way that like you kind of want to escalate into it at first to get more dice, yeah. and then you kind of want to ease off later and stop doing it. So it does give you that flow in the game of you take risks early because you know why wouldn't you? And then later on you're like, I need to manage this and throttle down a little bit, <laughs> uh, uh, as a character would in a game where they didn't know there was aliens running around trying to eat people. They probably would yeah. be more reckless, and then as they find out, uncover the horror, they're like. Oh, I'm scared now. I don't want to play this game. Yeah. Like, oh no, I've discovered the title of this game. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was just a nice, friendly sci-fi game, but no, apparently, alien <laughs> means we're going to meet an alien, right? Okay. <laughs> but but I think that in a way that's a good example of, of uh, a rule set, or oh, that's certainly the aspect of the rules anyway. They do feed into the kind of game, and that's yeah. that's been the sort of thing we're talking about, isn't it? When, when we say pick the right game, like definitely having that stress mechanic in Alien makes it more alien than the rest of the Mutant Year Zero games or other ones for example so uh, do, do look around for games if in a particular genre that like what's the mechanics that they have what's the extra bits it's not just rolling a d6 dice pool there's like a thing added on to that that then makes yeah. it useful for a particular style of play yeah and I think sometimes it's not obvious isn't it I remember running 13th age at a con once and uh, getting like at the end of the game a guy in the bar a guy said oh, well the players say that so I really like that montage thing that you added in that was that was really cool. It's uh, that really broke up because Thirteenth Age is a really crunchy game, and I like that you added that in just to give us a bit of a break. It's like, well, that, <laughs> it, it is actually in the game. Like it is a, it is a Thirteenth Age. It, it's written in the rules. I can show you it. I didn't make that up. It's like, <laughs> oh right, is it? <laughs> so that kind of yeah. that kind of thing of it, 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 you know, actually using those things, using all aspects of the game, and thinking, is it? It's not just a common mechanic. It's easy when you get a new rule set. Like none of us read core books from back to front do we we don't go through it all not anymore i got just, time just that kind of how to how to run this game um section 
is just worth looking at in a little bit more detail sometimes, isn't it? Because there might be little gems that you, you wouldn't have thought of that don't mm. seem obvious. Like we were saying about PBTA games, that there's, there's, there's GM advice in that that's really, really codified. And for me, those bits about um, MC moves and what you do for the players, like that's the rules of Power by the Apocalypse, not 2d6 add a bonus and get a target number. It's what you do and when you make hard moves and what soft moves are and what hard moves are that yeah. are the real core of the game and how you use that to, to drive usually a really kind of improvised session with just a few kind of parameters set. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, maybe we'll try that in the near future, Guy. Who knows? Give an opportunity. Cause <laughs> it's, 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 I, I know it's a challenge. I know you're not the biggest fan of PBTA, so maybe sometime we'll... Uh, well, this is the thing. Is I think, actually, I am a fan of it. I'm just not a fan of the way I've seen it played most of the time and my experience of it. It's been more that kind of ignoring those codified bits that you're talking about and just rolling 2d6 and playing it in a very traditional way. And, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of systems, but that means people actually reading the systems and, and applying them. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard, I think it's hard at conventions as well because I, I have that thing where if I'm sat in a game that I know and the GM starts like describing the rules, and I think you get, you get the occasional thing where they start saying it, and they they just say completely straight faced, start describing, and this is how this works, and you think oh, it doesn't though. That's no, not, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> that's not that's not what armor class is or whatever. And and there's a real kind of internal like, should I say it or because it, it's a bit of a it's a bit rude, isn't it, to immediately be like, uh, I don't think that's quite how it works, and well, how you actually, raise it. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I think you'll find that. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? To, to it is. That. So, yeah, basically, re- read the rules is the is the biggest advice we've got. Read That's it. Yeah, <laughs> actually, read the rules and then apply them, and then change them if you don't like them. But like, yeah, do read them and try them first. Is this? I think that's the. Well, this could have been a lot shorter podcast if we just. Thought... <laughs> Cool. Well, the sands of time are against us, guys. So thanks very much for coming on and being our stunt Baz this week. Cool. It's a pleasure. And uh, thanks to everybody out there in Listenerland, everybody who likes or shares the posts, anyone who's a patron who throws a couple of shekels our way. Me and Baz have got ideas about uh, putting some written content together for you to, to show a bit of appreciation. So continue listening, liking, sharing, uh, being our patrons, and we shall see you next time on What Would the Smart Party Do? Mm-hmm.